the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. My name is Anastasios Adamopoulos and this week I am joined by three of Lloyd's List's very own. With us today we have uh, shipping and commodities analyst Michelle Vici Bachman. Hi Michelle. Uh, we have market specialist Nita Bash. And we have our chief correspondent, Richard Clayton. Hello there. Hi. So there are a number of things you three have been following over the past week. Perhaps we could start with the international conflict engulfing Venezuela, which shows no sign of respite at the moment and continues to affect a number of sectors around the shipping industry. Now, another shipping company has been caught in the crossfire with the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control, simply known as OFAC, penalizing them for apparently shipping oil from Venezuela to Cuba. Michelle, you've been following this story. You've been covering it for this week. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why uh, it could be more important just beyond Mm -hmm. the case itself? Well, this this is really interesting for a whole lot of reasons. Now, firstly, it's an extension of existing sanctions. So it came out on the 12th of April. And for the first time, it's brought in ship owners who aren't from the US. So basically what happened in this case is OFAC named an Italian company and six of its seven vessels in its fleet and then also named two other shelf companies, Liberian registered shelf companies and two ships. But what happened is effectively the Italian ship owner has been in touch with Lloyd's List and he said firstly he read about these sanctions being applied to his company and his vessels in Lloyd's List. There's no correspondence with OFAC Hmm. and secondly only one of those vessels had been involved in Venezuelan trades. As it turns out that vessel was on a a longer term time charter to a Cuban company not to PDVSA, the National Oil Company of Venezuela and he'd sought legal advice in the UK and the US to see that he was compliant with sanctions and he believed he was. He nevertheless terminated that time charter at some stage during March. So not only were those April 12 sanctions appear to be retrospectively imposed on him, but he's also been effectively named and shamed. Contrast that with the other two vessels, also internationally trading vessels, they were just named as the shelf company. Now anybody in shipping with half a brain, goes to Equasis, which is a free database, looks up that company, gets the address, and then you can match that address against the correspondence that goes to a shipping company. In this case, both of them were in Greece. I'm not going to name the shipping companies. And so they didn't have their other vessels in their fleet sanctioned. So that raises the question, was was OFAC stupid or was it ignorant? Mm. Why apply these sanctions inconsistently The other worry is that these are sort of like a form of secondary sanctions, which is like the sanctions that are applied in Iran, where non-US citizens can be sort of swept into this net. So really, you've got this very hawkish rhetoric, very imprecise and deliberately vague sanctions, and you have a shipping industry trying to be compliant and not really sure where it stands. So inconsistency is the word you use there. Have you heard anything from OFAC about this? Have they given any kind of explanation for the different approach in these two cases? OFAC chooses when and where it wants to talk to journalists and it has chosen not to expand on how it, it formed these decisions. Unfortunately, neither has the Italian 
tanker owner, which is the Barbaro family, PB Tankers, we can only assume that these sanctions related in some way to a financial breach, if there was a breach, but we don't really know because they're not really too keen to expand on how they believe it happened either. So what are you going to be following now with regards to this story and fact when it comes to, to Venezuela specifically? Well, I think you're now seeing a lot of the P&I clubs coming out saying, okay, it's now time to really watch your involvement and to be absolutely doubly clear that you're compliant with these things. And I think um, because there's sanctions on financial transactions that involve the US dollar, mm. I think um, depending on the kind of charter party you have, whether it's contract of a freightment or FOB or, or CIF, I think all of these things have to be carefully considered. And I don't know, I, I don't think maritime lawyers have the answer. And I think you have, as I said earlier, you have a very frustrated Trump administration mm. who has for nearly three months sought the removal of the Maduro government. And then you have these sanctions effectively not working how he'd want them to work. So they're now sort of looking to, to expand that net and take in Cuba. And their, their rhetoric's hardening on Cuba mm. also as recently as um, Thursday before Easter. Okay. I mean, it's a very uh, interesting story and regulatory inconsistency, so to speak, is not a new phenomenon for this for this industry. Especially from OFAC. <laughs> I'll take your words for that. Um, but we, we are also seeing a sort of kind of... Um, inconsistent approach to safety as well. Last year, to, to be clear, you produced a report and an investigation whereby you found that um, governments were basically slacking in the responsibility to produce casualty reports for serious incidents at sea. You are looking at this again this year. Could you could you say a little bit about what you found so far and, and if the, the picture has changed at all? So Lloyd's List is um, embarking on, on what you could call a campaign uh, for seafarer safety. The analysis I've done this year is, is really relatively unchanged um, to what I found last year. Um, but it does look like safety on the surface seems to actually be improving. So the number of incidents that have been recorded uh, that involved loss of life or a total loss of vessel is actually on the decline over the past past decade. But there is still some way to go in order to, to be in a situation where we will see no incidents at sea and, and no loss of, of life. One of the contributing factors to the safety record um, in shipping is flag states producing um, reports following these very serious accidents. And uh, I have to include there that, that um, according to the IMO, these reports are mandatory. So if mm. there is loss of mm. life at sea, yeah. a report has to be investigated and a, uh, a report must be made publicly available so that one can learn lessons from this trend spotted and um, safety measures taken to avoid future, future tragedies. You said it's mandatory. What excuses or reasons are they, are they giving, are the countries that, are not, that have not submitted the necessary reports given? Well, just looking at the analysis, um, about 50% of reports that should have been filed do not appear on IMO's GISIS database, which is the Global Integrated Shipping Information Service. Reasons um, that flag states have given for, for a delay in, in filing the reports or not submitting the reports at all are, are varied. So one reason is some cases are more complex to investigate than others. The second reason is that uh, during the evidence gathering phase, flag states may be waiting for 
for other flag states to respond. Mm-hmm. Some are more responsive than others. If you look at um, interested parties and interested stakeholders, they have a right um, to, to give evidence. They may take their time about doing so. A third factor is that um, the IMO doesn't actually give a specific time frame for when these reports should be filed. So in my analysis, I looked at incidents that started or that happened in 2014, right up until the end of 2018. There are many reports that are still missing from 2014 incidents. So uh, it seems to be a waiting game, blaming the other game. In, in a lot of cases, you know, there are legitimate reasons uh, for why these reports are not being done. Yeah, and part of the reason why I, I guess they're mandatory is not just for reasons of accountability and shedding some light on what happened. It's also about helping inform policy making in the future about, you know, avoiding similar incidents from happening. Have you looked or could you could you say something on how this the shortfall is affecting that? I know you've been following the, the Stellar Daisy yes, and the exactly. converted ore carriers. That's exactly it. Um, the shipping industry is, is still waiting for the investigation report on the Stellar Daisy to be filed because if there are any issues with um, conversions of tankers into ore carriers, the industry would like to know what they are so mm. that they may remedy that situation. There are still 45 of these vessels trading in the fleet. Um, they generally ply Brazil to China routes. Some of them are on the Australia to China route. So it's, uh, it's, it's one that two years on from the incident, um, there is still no report. It seems like uh, the report is in the final internal approval stage. It apparently had been finished um, a year ago, but it was sent to um, the Philippines and South Korea for feedback mm. as the crew were from those countries. And while the Philippines managed to give its feedback in 30 days, as per the IMO requirements, a mutually agreed time between the flag state and South Korea was forged. And in the meantime, South Korea embarked on a um, search operation. Um, The wreck was actually located and uh, the VDR was found, which is the voyage data recorded, much like a black box in, an, in a plane. Mm-hmm. And it looks like that was uh, being looked at by, by the flag state. Yeah, I mean, we're all looking forward to seeing that. And uh, looking forward to your piece, on your, your analytical piece on this issue, which is coming out soon, I it believe. It's coming out shortly, yes. Okay. So, so keep a watch out for it. And I hope, I hope you'll find it as interesting a read. Good. As I do. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And, you know, safety is obviously a huge issue. And nowadays we know safety is moving beyond just the physical, which is obviously still very clearly very important. Um, it's also moved now into the digital realm. And Richard, you are sort of our, our expert on this subject. <laughs> you, have been, uh, you have been following this for quite uh, some time. And it looks like in this industry specifically... One of the issues we are facing in this transition to the digital era is um, the skill set, basically, and the combined with the leadership. Yeah, one of the things that, that, that I enjoy about this job is that occasionally somebody will say something in the middle of a conversation and you, you, you jump up and you say, nobody's talking about that. Right. I had a, a very interesting lunch with somebody, a uh, chief exec of a household name the other day, who said he was struggling within that company to find people to fill the middle management gap. People between 45 and, and 55, shore-based, not seafarers, but shore-based. 
there are so many conferences about seafarers and the skill shortages uh, and how we are going to upskill them as the industry changes. That's fine. I'm not sure how we will upskill, but that's a completely different issue. Most companies are able to fill the junior ranks. But with respect, Anas, millennials think <laughs> differently about the way uh, their career moves forward. In the old days, people thought about their whole career in one hit. Right. But millennials think differently, and there's nothing wrong with that. They, they think more short-term, right. and they move around between sectors and you know, within companies. Don't so, they say they're selfish? So they I think impatient is the word. But impatient, yeah. that's a good word. They bring STEM skills that, mm. the, that the industry needs, but they don't keep them. And at the other end of the scale, managers in their <laughs> mid-50s up into their mid-60s are coming to the end of their careers, and retirement often seems a very interesting option. They're at the executive level, and what they need to see is this middle management group mm. coming through. But from various conversations I've had, I think that middle section is being stretched. And this is important because if we talk about digitalization, we talk about disruption, we're going to need a group of people who fully understand how their company is working and what the dangers but also the opportunities are from digitalization. So you've got to have somebody who has been there more than five or six years and has skills across the business, but also is looking for leadership opportunities. I think this is a, this is a critical issue. People in their mid-40s to their mid-50s, these are the people who are going to take the industry mm. forward and they're being stretched pretty thinly. So we can talk about digital disruption, but are we really thinking about shoreside management, who these guys are, what they need to know and giving them the tools to take that step up into the senior level. I mean, this industry is somewhat notorious, as some people would say, for having um, more rigid characters at the top of, uh, of businesses, especially when they're private. Do you think, from, from what you know, from what you've seen, that there is this sort of um, tendency, uh, and of course this is a generalization, but there is a tendency to to stifle change internally simply because you know one is used to operating the way they've always done and therefore sort of you know blocking the ascension of the ascent of those people that you said are being stretched thin yeah I, it's, it's often seen as a conservative industry we've got yeah. to understand what that means um, this this is an industry that thinks longer term than mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. most other industries because yeah. Ships are built for a long period of time. In order to get any money out of a logistics supply chain, you've got to think beyond two or three years. You have to think 10 years and, and beyond. So you put in place a time horizon that's slightly longer than most other companies. And you need people to, to shepherd that through. If you've got skills that are move into the business and then move out of the business, there is a little bit of kind of destabilization. So it's not that people want to block that movement of people up through the industry it's that that's just Mm. the natural way it is it's a more long-term play and so how do you think this problem that we're facing now could be or resolved but basically the situation could be improved in in the quest for for a 
I think at the, the at the board level, so we're looking at the senior executives, the people who need to put into place the foundations for the future. They need to understand what skills are missing in that middle sector. Often you can train from within, mm. but more often you bring people from outside because right. they have 15 or 20 years of experience in digital technology or in cyber security or in uh, if you're going to go down that road, autonomous shipping, they already have those skills mm. and you bring them in. I found it really interesting. One company bought another company and the second company was full of 40-somethings, full of fresh mm. ideas, and the older company were saying, oh my goodness, I'm going to be forced out of a job here. Mm. 55 to 65, I can see a lot of those retiring earlier than they used to. And that will allow some of the middle managers to move up but it's understanding the skills that are needed and trying to fill them not through just training somebody that's already in the junior level into that middle but bringing people from outside so digital disruption is probably a good thing because it's going to bring knowledge and skills and experience from outside the industry all right well thank you all for being here this week and thank you to the token millennial for being here as well of course my honor